This is Hacker Public Radio episode 3174 for Thursday the 1st of October 2020. Today's show is entitled Linux in Laws Season 1 Episode 14 The Big Programming Language Panel and is part of the series Linux in Laws. It is hosted by Monochromec and is about 53 minutes long and carries an explicit flag. The summary is our heroes host an eclectic panel of experts discussion C++, Python and Rust. This episode of HPR is brought to you by Archive.org. Support universal access to all knowledge by heading over to Archive.org forward slash donate. Linux in Laws, a podcast on topics around free and open source software, any associated contraband, communism, the revolution in general, and whatever else fancies your tickle. Please note that this and other episodes may contain strong language, offensive humor, and other certainly not politically correct language. You have been warned. Our parents insisted on this disclaimer. Happy mum! Thus, the content is not suitable for consumption in the workplace, especially when played back on a speaker in an open-plan office or similar environments. Any minors under the age of 35 or any pets, including fluffy little killer bunnies, your trusted guide dog, unless on speed, and cute T-Rexes or other associated dinosaurs. And this is Linux in Law Season 1, Episode 14, um, the big... Programming language discussion. Martin, how are things? How are things? Things are great, except for the Python script that someone uh, wrote that crashes my Audacity. So, which is quite an intro to our programming languages special. But there we go. Martin, just don't blame it all on Python. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm blaming, I'm blaming it on the author of the script. <laughs> <laughs> Full disclosure: Martin is is talking about me because I wrote the script. Martin is using probably some Windows, trying no. to get Python to run on Windows, no. <laughs> <laughs> because it's Audacity versus also running on Windows. <laughs> not not this particular Audacity, actually. Oh, there we go. News. news. Okay, news. Um, yes, so uh, news that ties in rather nicely with our programming language episode. Uh, and something that you will particularly be uh, also fond of hearing is the fact of the um, new operating system uh, AWS has introduced uh, called Bottle Rocket for um, 
actually written in Rust. So this is was a complete. Um, well, Bottle Rocket wasn't a secret, but that it was written in Rust is a, a news to me. And um, so it is entering. Uh, no, if the bookshop <laughs> is actually using a programming language to write uh, OSs in, then you want to something quite significant. What do you think? Interesting perspective, given the fact that um, there's another one called Redox OS. Uh -huh. People, we might be tempted to do a special before the year is over on operating systems written in Rust. Both um, <laughs> yeah, both of them, exactly. <laughs> so what exactly is Bottle Rocket then, Martin? Explain a little bit more, please. Okay. Um, so AWS has decided to add um, a, a, a Linux for containers, basically. It's, it's a cut-down version. Um, you know, for containers, you don't need uh, every package under the sun, right? You just want uh, an OS that can run a container. Um, so being at AWS, uh, this code has obviously not been available unless I... I've been looking in the wrong places, but <laughs> um, so the exact details of, of the contents of this OS are, uh, as with all things AWS, quite well hidden. But um, it, um, it 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 sort of taunts improved security with um, uh, you know removed packages with with packet filters, um, kernel monitoring, etc. So they've done a fair bit of. You know, extra bits around making those mm. specific security uh, concerns addressed in okay. a container OS. What it looks like. Cool. Um, and this is in production right now. As, uh, yes, it's been released as GA now, isn't it? So it was. It there has been talked about for a while. But, um, okay. Um, and um, yeah, so so the whole. I mean, I think you mentioned uh, earlier, which I don't. We'll come on to your news in a minute, but. The whole rusting seems to be, um, uh, as we'll find out from our um, uh, guests later on, uh, on, seriously on the up as a language. Um, <clears throat> yeah, uh, along these very lines, um, there was something called the Linux Plumbers Conference in late August, where, and you'll find the details, of course, people in the show notes, where a couple of people have taken serious steps to lay the infrastructure for the inclusion of Rust codes beyond drivers in the Linux kernel. The infrastructure work <coughs> seems to be quite advanced. Um, even the upper echelons are not talking about not replacing the whole kernel with the Rust implementation, but rather um, seriously evaluating whether to implement new functionality in the Linux kernel in C or actually Rust. Um, they are talking, they're already talking about modifying the build system to incorporate Rust. And given the fact that this is one of the kind of early steps, work seems to, um, work seems to have progressed quite a long way already. Meaning, I wouldn't say that the current Linux kernel is ready for prime time for Rust now, but the steps, the serious steps are being taken as we speak. <clears throat> Given the fact that we're talking about a code base of about 25 million lines and with hmm. a technical uh, heritage, for want of a better expression, of about what, Martin? 30 years? Yeah. Almost? 
That's a long, that's a long time. Yeah, so yeah, don't hold your breath, um, <laughs> with running, um, with, with Linux kind of purely being implemented in Rust or re-implemented in Rust because that certainly won't happen because of the sheer size of the code base. But going forward, it wouldn't surprise me to see more and more fragments written in Rust entering the Linux kernel code base. Something very interesting. Yeah, definitely. <clears throat> um, and by the way, I stand corrected on my previous comment. Uh, Bottle Rocket is, in fact, an open source project. So uh, all cool is available on GitHub. <clears throat> excellent, excellent, excellent. What else do we have for news? And in slightly different um, <clears throat> different news, um, Martin, you are running Windows, right? I'm running four <laughs> different OSs. Other than being Windows, yes. <laughs> Excellent. You'll be glad to know, Martin, that Windows has now achieved a rolling release status. Okay. Similar to font Arch, uh, to font Linux distributions like Arch and so forth. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Linux is now a, a, a rolling release. Given the fact that I had the impression that Windows was a, although Windows 10 apparently will be the last Windows version as officially distributed by Microsoft, I had the impression we were talking about half-yearly upgrades, uh, similar to, for example, uh, Canonical does it with Ubuntu. So mm. you have the 2004, mm. you have the 2010, you have the 1904, and you have the 1910. And no, but I was... Um, Corrected in that assumption, uh, because the Ubuntu, the well-known Ubuntu podcast, as in season 13, episode 23, um, <clears throat> Alan Pope revealed it all. Alan oh. actually compared, yes, uh, Windows to a rolling release approach. Something very interesting, given the fact that um, Windows only issues, I think, year, as I said, half-yearly updates. <clears throat> but Martin, maybe you can elaborate on that, given the fact that you are a Windows user. Uh, well, so, um, yeah, they may release many releases, whatever they like, but uh, my, one of my previous Windows machines is still running XP. So, um, yeah, uh, I'm not one to, to talk about releases um. <laughs> Martin, in that case, if, if you're if you're still running XP, you I, I, I may be glad. I, I may uh, ad adopt a different strategy with Windows 10. <laughs> yes, Martin. If you're still running Windows XP, you'll be glad to hear that an upcoming uh, episode of Linux in Laws will talk uh -huh. about IT security. <laughs> well, it's very secure because it's not connected to any network. <laughs> so you're running this self self-sustained on solar power. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> if it's not connected to any network at all. Mm -hmm. Wow, interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can you send pics? We can. We can yeah. <laughs> excellent, excellent. Okay. That's uh, what else? Turn, turn off yeah. as well. So, yeah. <laughs> Which extra, probably should very, very be, secure. Yeah. <laughs> Which probably should be the default setting for any XP system. <laughs> Still out there. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, other news. Yes. Um, Thunderbird 78 now includes OpenPGP. So for those aficionados out there still using Thunderbird or, 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 or using Thunderbird once again, you do not need uh, plugins like Enigmail to uh, securely send your mail because now um, Thunderbird includes already OpenPGP per definition out of the box. So simply upgrade, um, import or migrate your Enigma mail settings to 
OpenPGP and Thunderbird actually takes you by the hand and does it for you or does it with you rather, including key, including key migration and all the rest of it. So it's that's that pro, that process is really straightforward. Cool. And the last bit of news from my side is actually um, Fedora is is serious about getting ButterFS into production because they're looking right now for testers for Fedora Core 33 for ButterFS. So if you have a couple of spare cycles, you'll find the link in the, sh- in the show notes. Um, give that project a hand. Okay. Anything else from your side, uh, Martin? Well, it, um, if you're interested in in, in um, the, uh, the history of Linux in a nutshell, there's a handy um, a link in the show notes, a handy uh, document someone's written on this subject. So, um, if you want the last twenty nine years of Linux in a in a nutshell, cool. Yeah, please hmm. um, uh, send me that link, and I'm going to include it in the show notes. Okay, if there's no, if there's no other news, let's continue with our special on programming languages. Yes. And over to the panel. This is Linux in Laws season one episode 14, the big programming language panel. Welcome, gents. Thank you. Um, Martin, over to you. Yes, welcome, Jeff and Mike. Would you you like to say a few words about yourself before we get started on the programming languages themselves? Who should start? Yeah. Oh, Jeff. (laughs) Go, Jeff. Oh yeah, so my name is uh my name is Jeff Land. Um I work currently in the VR and eye tracking space in Tokyo and before that um almost 10 years in mobile app development. Um I'm just a long-time C++ programmer. I occasionally tweet about C++. And uh and yeah, I think that's all you need to know about me at this point. Thank you, Jeff. Mike, yourself? Yeah. My name is Mike Müller and I'm a Python trainer. So I spent the last 10, 15 years mainly uh, teaching Python. So I do have a scientific background. Therefore, also a lot of my Python course participants are are scientists. And uh, in addition to being a Python trainer, I'm also pretty deep in the Python community. So I'm I'm an organizer of a bunch of Python conferences and I'm still involved in Python conferences and everything that has to do with Python. Okay, and finally, thank you, Mike. Finally, <clears throat> since we did not, uh, we had a cancellation on the Rust front at the last minute, our own Christoph Silverman will be covering the Rust language. Indeed, my name is Chris Silverman. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm the co-host of a podcast called Linux In-Laws. have been doing Rust for the last three years, three and a half years, maybe. And uh, also gave presentations on Rust at this year's FOSSEM and all the rest of it. More later on this beautiful language. Okay, thank you, everyone. So I'd like to start with a, a little bit of uh, history on each language. So where, where, <clears throat> first of all, where do you think it came from? Where do you think its purpose is? And how did you yourself get used to it? So if we stick to the same kind of sequence... And then we can open it up for more discussion after that kind of first intro on the languages for those not that familiar with them. That's okay. So, Jeff, please, what do you, th- what would you like to say about C++? 
Um, well, first, let me say I'm not a representative of C++ of the greater community or anything like that. So I'm just sharing my own opinions today. Uh, but C++, I think everyone's at least aware of, of kind of what it is to some extent and what it's for. Um, but it's, it's a rather old language, but the thing I, I want people to understand is that it's changed a lot, even just in the, t in the 15 years or so I've been doing it. Um, it's changed quite a lot. Um, C++ 11 was a huge update. Um, 14, 17 and C++ 20, which was recently standardized, um, or have also changed the language significantly. Um, and I think really it's, uh, it's like best features or not features, but it, the, it's, it's area of applicability is probably, um, large code bases, um, that need to be at least somewhat performant. Um, so in my, like where I began with C++ was in game development, um, around, you know, 2000, around the year 2000. Um, although I started as a hobby programmer, so I don't know the exact date. Um, but it's still extremely relevant in that field, um, because the, the type safety, um, the, the abstractions that it provides for high level usage, but at the same time still being performant, um, are really useful in that space. Um, and nowadays I'm using it in the VR space as well, where, where I think it's still a really good language for that. And of course there's tons of companies out there with huge C++ code bases. Um, and Definitely. so I think really that's where, that's where it excels. Like I, I wouldn't, you know, start a C++ like script just for, you know, moving files around or something like that. I would, I would use another language for that. But when it comes to like, I'm going to write this big thing that's going to last for 10 years. Um, I think C++ is a really good choice. It, uh, so. Yes, I, I, that's, that's, I have to agree with that. And, and so in my uh, experience from coming across C++, it tends to be in the high-performance uh, finance space as well, where people choose that as a language. But um, is, have you come across that as well? That it's, it's as you, I think you said already, it's mainly chosen for performance, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I do think um, Rust can present some challenges um, to C++, so maybe we can get into that. Uh, today, because okay. Rust also yeah. has a lot of similar goals, um, where it's performance, um, it's still high level, you know, like it's not like C. Um, it doesn't have all the, the dangers of, of having to write inline assembly or C like that, but you can still make really nice high performance programs. Um, yeah, I'm curious to see, because I haven't worked on, on Wall Street, for example, if there's been adoption of Rust there, but I, I still think that's the general domain of C++. So. Very good. Very good. Okay, uh, that's a very nice introduction to C++. So let's move over to Python and rather than getting into the Rust debate <laughs> to start with. That's okay, Mike. Would you like yeah. to do the same? Yes. So Python actually has a kind of a birthday. There's a nice anecdote. Guido van Rossum, or probably if you pronounce it Dutch, is Guido van Rossum. He's the originator, the original developer of Python. He didn't have anything to do uh, between Christmas and New Year's 1989, and he developed Python. Which I guess is partially true. He worked at a research institute in Amsterdam at the time, and he was heavily involved in language development. And then they put a lot of pieces together. And Python at this time kind of uh, settled in the niche between C as a system program languages and Perl languages, a language you can only write and never understand again. So, so of course, Perl has that kind <laughs> of reputation. Uh, it's just I'm being funny here. So, but 
a Python settlement is niche to, to fill this one. So easy to understand. It has a background in ABC, which was a teaching language, a toy language, so the syntax indentation. So it should be very easy for, for people to get in, but at the same time, also good enough for professional people to do some real work. And that's actually one of the interesting features of Python. That's how it developed. And I think the first public release was 1991 in March. Yeah, so Python is going to turn 30 mm -hmm. soon, actually. And it was pretty small. And I got involved in Python in 1999. I still remember I bought my first book. At this time, there was the second German book came out and of like five English books. Now it's like 500, I'm sure. <laughs> and uh, I bought this one in April. And I needed it to actually do scientific programming. It was back in my days at a research institute. And I had a couple of numerical codes. And the first thing I did with Python, actually, I wrapped Fortran. So Fortran is existing code, been there for decades, very performant, but really difficult to use, and wrapped the whole stuff in Python. And I wrapped the other thing in C in Python and just put everything together. So I glued three numerical codes together, and I did it in Python. And that's one of the good, interesting areas of Python, so-called glue language application. So you use Python to glue together existing systems. And that's, I think, where Python shines. Because Python itself, C Python, we can talk about implementations, is implemented in C, and you can easily connect with C, and with C you can connect with many other languages, and there's also connections with Rust nowadays and many others. So yeah, you can also talk to Fortran, and in a kind of more or less convenient way, so you can exchange data and wrap it. And that's how I started uh, with Python, and I've been involved in this Python for quite a while now, since 1999, and and then I got into teaching because I was in university and taught some lectures there already. And then if you, if you teach at university level already and you use Python, then doing Python training is a kind of something that makes a lot of sense. And Python, the language is interesting. It's totally open source and it's used in many different areas. There's not only one area is used in pretty much everything. So web development, all kinds of scripting things, all this cloud, many cloud solutions use Python a lot. Uh, scientific area, there's a lot of scientists that use Python for a long time. That's where Python has a lot of libraries. Uh, machine learning, which is kind of data science, which is kind of connected to science in one way or the other, but also web and many, many other things. You, you can find Python pretty much everywhere. There's I even heard that one guy implemented a, a toy operating system in Python, which is probably not the best domain for Python. But, <laughs> yeah, uh, it works. It, he used, he used yeah. MicroPython, which is a Python especially designed for microcontrollers, a very different implementation. Yeah, because Python has two things. It's a language itself and has a reference Im implementation, which is C Python, which is probably 98% or 99% people use it. And there's a bunch of other implementations like PyPy and MicroPython and a few others that I'm not that Come Jason, Iron Python, or Python for yeah. Net, and so on. Okay, so that is so. Uh, I think from what I'm hearing uh, is that you're saying that Python is great because of its variety, number of libraries, yes. and yes. application of uses. Right now, that's its main strength. Is, yes, um, so there's there's a saying: Python is the second best language for everything. So th that means right. Python is yeah. good in pretty much every area. Maybe not the very best, but you have the advantage you can use the same language. If you want to write a web application or if you do want an HPC high performance cluster or if you want to do some cloud development or whatever you like, you can use the same language and you have very powerful libraries that in addition wrap libraries potentially in other languages that you can take advantage of this functionality also without switching the language. 
Yeah, no, that's great. Uh, obviously, the, uh, um, the fact that it's been open source is, makes it quite uh, transparent. And have you been following the kind of the project as well and, and all the development around yes. know, over those years, right? There's, there's two things. There's one thing is like the, there's, there's the Python Software Foundation, which is a, mm-hmm. um, kind of copyright hold of Python, and they do all the administrative things. Like they do the Python conferences, collect money and distribute this, uh, distribute it back to the community supporting open source projects. And there's a core developers. So I'm following some of the lists. I'm not myself a core developer, uh, but I'm following those lists and uh, kind of follow what people are doing a little bit. And it's a very interesting uh, um, way. So Python ideas, for instance, they talk about new things that might become part of Python or not. And I'm following this a little bit. It's a very interesting uh, project because Python doesn't have like a specification, but has a reference implementation. It's a bit different approach than C++. So there's no kind of board people coming together and setting the rules, but uh, they have this process called PEP, a Python enhancement proposal. So if you have a great idea, what uh, should become part of Python, you probably should join Python ideas and discuss it there. And if it's good enough, you can write this PEP thing where you describe what you want to do, how you want to do it, and if possible, kind of a reference implementation to shape. That's how it works. And then you need a sponsor from the core developers that supports your PEP and there's kind of a semi-formalized process to get it get it in. That's very pretty interesting. And it seems like it works pretty well because Python wants to strike the balance between uh, be able to do a lot of things, but don't have too many features that you kind of get burdened by all those many different ways of doing this. So Python want to have one preferred way of doing something. There's always many ways of doing things, but usually there's one preferred way and you want to kind of not to have too many ways doing the same thing, which makes it more difficult for people to learn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that, that's great, Mike. Uh, sorry, we we did do a, a a couple of episodes on Python, so we, we okay. want to try and give, give give a little bit of speaking time to Rust as well. <laughs> Thank you for that very much. Um, so last but not least, uh, our own Christoph on Rust. Yeah, thanks. Um, having used all the two remaining languages, i.e. Python, I see what Jeff and as well as uh, Mike are referring to. The first big project that I actually did in, in C++ was um, the meta-level architecture for the experimental, experimental microkernel that I was developing for the as part of the PhD. And we did the kernel in C as well as C++. And I learned C around, at the tender age, I think, of 14 or 15, something like this. Um, all through my uni years, I've administered um, Unix or, yeah, well, Unix system because Linux wasn't around then. So um, that was also the program language, language of choice for my um for my bachelor thesis. So yeah, I've, I've been growing up using C and C++, so I can, I can totally see what Jeff says. Uh, but then as part of the PhD, we were also looking for a, a scripting language to do much of the QA framework with. And so I came across Perl and Python. And suffice it to say, I've been using Python since the early days for, as my, as Mike rightly outlined, for gluing stuff together. In terms of Python as a significant ecosystem. And for me, programming in Python is basically taking a look at what's out there. There's something called the, the, the PyPy, the, the Python package archive or index, sorry, index, my mistake. And then simply writing the glue code 
that ties together these modules. Um, similarly, um, Rust has also filled this niche in terms of its, within the last 10 years, I think the first commit was about 11 years ago. Okay, let me shed some more light on the history of Rust. About 13 years ago, I think 2007, something like this, uh, Brian H. and, and friends at, at the, at Mozilla, uh, was, were looking for an alternative program language for the implementation of what was then the rendering engine for something called Firefox, which is, I think, a browser, if I'm completely mistaken. Jokes aside, if you take a look at the implementation of much of the code base of Firefox up to that point, you'll see a very large code base and and Brendan and friends clearly saw the rising technical depth with that code base, never mind the more and more effort that they had to pour into this code base for QA. So they take, they, they basically take a, took a look at what's out there and decided to do the, to do their own language, not trying to repeat the perceived mistake is probably a too strong word for this, but you'll see this actually at some of the language aspects of Rust. Um, to do it better, let's put it this way. So Rust, for example, is a, has a strong typing system, is a compiled language, and um, has a couple of unique traits that basically allow moving of much of the um, testing of what that you would typically do after a build to the compile phase. Memory management probably being the, one of the primary examples in this case. So the old adage still applies. If you can convince a Rust compiler to generate code to ex, uh, to produce an executable binary, um, you're almost half there. Um, because Python, you just write a script and then hope for the best once you execute it. So the, uh, one of the main philosophy, philosophies behind Rust is to move this, um, this effort from the from the um, QA phase to the compile phase, and I'm, I'm happy to say that um, the ecosystem that it, it probably took Python to develop f- for 15 years or something like that, maybe even 20, in Rust has has been done more or less over the last 10 years. If you take a look at the um, package index on car uh, on the on, on the crate.io side, it's pretty comprehensive. Python has four or five web frameworks. Rust, with the within ten years, has developed three main ones, and it's still growing. So I'm I'm really looking forward to the discussion uh, between the three languages, having used all three of them. Yeah, thanks, thanks for that, Chris. That um, as Jeff already said, you mentioned, alluded to earlier, he, he thinks that Rust may be posing a challenge to C Have you been using any Rust yourself yet, Jeff, or just from a studying point of view? Uh, just from a studying point of view, I've written little scripts and things like that. Um, the trouble is, like with C usually we're working on large code bases. Um, so I think really Rust is going to sneak in in like individual modules like the next version of our firmware at our company or something, if we have a good chance to restart, I would consider doing it in Rust. But we just have so much C++ code that it's hard to just have a new, a a completely isolated place where we can start a Rust code base. Um, So I think that's one of the challenges for for Rust. Do you think that's going to be a a problem going forward for adoption of the language as well? um, 
yeah, you know, if if people do have those large code bases in C++, then will there be a place to start even adopting Rust? It's, it's, people have skills, uh, companies have invested in um, in a certain technology, then changing no matter what technology, whether it's uh, programming languages or databases, <clears throat> right? It, uh, they want to maintain that uh, investment. Um, is, is that why we're not seeing so much of an uptake of Rust so far, do you think? I think that's part of it. One is the existing code bases. Two is, as you mentioned, like training. Like it just even within my company, we have, I mean, it's mostly a C++ code base, but you also need to know Python because there's various scripts. You need to know a little MATLAB. Um, you need to know C because there's various bindings that go through C. And it's like, if I add Rust to the code base, that's yet another language that we have to train people on when we hire. Um, and so mm -hmm. that itself is a problem, I would say. I like um, to, to, yeah, that's, that's, thank, thanks. Can, I will say one thing yeah. though. Yeah. Um, if, if you ask for Rust programmers, you get, I would say, and this is my opinion, I don't want to offend anyone, but you get a really <laughs> high caliber programmer. <laughs> like, uh, like it really weeds out, um, a lot of bad applicants if you put Rust on, uh, on the requirements list for what you're looking for to hire, or at least the, the, the wish list things that you would like to see in an applicant. Um, right, that's just something right. I've noticed so far. But Jeff, it's, you get you get all the numbers. Is that why you is that is that why you added it, Chris? <laughs> <laughs> but Jeff, you get all the lotters, the, the kind of the, the hipsters drinking coffee, drinking drinking soy lattes in hipster coffee shops. No, yeah, uh, yeah, but a lot of them know what they're doing, which is interesting. <laughs> Indeed. No, I'll, it's, come back, it's, it's, I'll come back to you in a minute, Chris. Let, let's get to Mike's view on, on the on the of Rust course, sorry, yes. opinion as well. Sorry, Mike. Yeah. Mike, have, what's your view on on the Rust versus C plus plus debate? Yeah, I think it's it's interesting for me. Uh, if I understand right, Rust adds this security. So in in C plus plus, you can, if you want, uh, massage the memory and do pointer kind of stuff. Uh, which in Rust, if you do this borrow checking thing, if, so I'm, I'm, I'm a layman in this thing, gives you a lot of security. So you, you can achieve pretty much the same performance in Rust as in C++ without potential, um, uh, problems with, uh, with set faults and all kinds of uh, problems. And actually, if, if, if this right. So in short. That's, that's a very interesting perspective, Mike, because, um, I presented a, um, some background. I presented a paper at Forstam this year. Uh, sorry, sorry, not a paper, but a presentation outlining what Redis Labs did with something called Redis JSON 2. It's essentially, it's a module, um, running on top of native Redis. Modules are uh, application specific extensions for databases running on top of a very popular NoSQL database called, uh, database called Redis. And essentially what these modules do, they turn native Redis into an application-specific database, like a database of uh, able uh, of handling uh, documents, of handling graphs, of handling full-text search, and so forth. And the first iteration was actually done in native C of Redis JSON, because C is the program language that uh, the project founder used to implement the server, as well as some of the initial extensions as in modules. And then um, the total re-implementation was done in Rust. So what the lads did down in Israel, actually, they wrote a crate that essentially implements the module SDK. So allowing you to then write modules in Rust 
uh, using that um, SDK crate that natively then talks to the server. And the performance overhead that you paid when using Rust instead of native C was only in the on the order of, of five to ten percent. It's something that I found pretty interesting from a um, a security perspective because in contrast to native C, we have to do much of the memory management manually because this is basically what C gives you. C plus plus, of course, is a little bit different here. But uh, in contrast to this, Rust basically takes you by the hand and it won't generate code if uh, the memory management is not up to scratch because uh, it does manage the, the memory for you more or less automatically. Um, and essentially, uh, you have to know what you're doing in terms of, for example, there's a concept of an ownership where Rust ensures that at any given point in time, only uh, one scope actually owns a piece of memory mm -hmm. that can, especially for people who are at the beginning of the learning curve, uh, can, that can be here in, a challenge here and there because some of the concepts, some of the concepts, especially if you're starting off with programming R, can be hard to grasp. Um, but moving on, what I what I what I feel interesting is actually, and that goes back to Jeff's comment. Um, there was a proposal about two years back where some chap or it's actually two of them, started to write Linux device drivers in Rust. Uh, that led to the ultimate com uh, comment by somebody called Linus Torvalds that he sees um, Rust entering the kernel space more and more and more. Now, mm -hmm. if you take a look at the Linux kernel, you'll notice that Linus started this, I think, with 12,000 lines of code in 1992, and I think the latest uh, metrics coming from the Linux Foundation clock in at about 20 million lines of code these days for a Linux kernel. Um, it's interesting, and I would like to get the perspective of Jeff and, and Mike on this, if you see any other traditional large code bases, such as the, such as the Linux kernel, basically opening up for, for, for new languages, and Rust, I think, it would be one of the examples here. Well, I think Firefox, like you mentioned, is, is another obvious example. Um, I mean, there's a huge amount of infrastructure that's just everyone uses, right? Like these major open source projects, OpenSSH, Linux, all the, all the browser engines. I think any of these, especially places where security is relevant, um, are good places, or I don't know if they are, because I, I'm not involved with all these projects, obviously, but are good places to consider, um, allowing Rust or writing like bindings or things where other people can start adding rust at least around the peripheries even if we can't rewrite the code bases and i and like i said i think where security is especially relevant such as the kernel such as browsers um i think that would be a very wise choice Okay, Mike, Mike, what about yourself? What do you think about the... Yeah, I think, uh, I, of course, I have to speak from the Python perspective, or I will speak from the Python perspective. Uh, nowadays, uh, let's let's take the science, science, uh, scientist field as an example. So, uh, of course, I have a lot of contact with scientists. And traditionally, they use C++, Fortran, these kind of languages for their computations. But more and more, they realize that they, they have performance problems, but very often the performance is only... 
in a very small area. So they have a solver for PDEs, so partial differential equations, for instance. And this is sometimes a few hundred lines of code, but the whole program is many 10,000 lines or, or more, 100,000 lines of code. And very often there's no need to write a whole application in C++ or Fortran, just because you need this few hundred lines fast. And that's probably the trend that you keep the solver in a compiled language and write the rest in Python, which is usually not performance critical. So moving files around and Python has so many libraries that it just again, and that's where it goes. And nowadays also there's a lot of libraries that in Python, you use Python, but they generate new code. You write Python code and they generate code in the background, like numbers, one of these things. It's something that can generate uh, uh, native GPU code, for instance. So you write Python and this has a nice thing. It generates performant GPU code because programming a GPU is something, if you look at this, it's, some, it's a total science itself. You don't understand anything if you have no idea how GPU works. And very often as application programmer, you don't want to get in this field. And that's probably a trend now that Python becomes a front end and generates code in other languages that will be compiled. So it's like metaprogramming, if you want. And then you you take away the burden of fiddling with all the details because very often you're not really familiar with all the details because you run your write application and you're not necessarily an expert in one of these low-level fields like GPU or something else or compilers in general. They need to know all the things. And those tools very often do a better job than some person who's not the, the total expert in this field. And that's how I see okay. uh, how this probably goes. That's an interesting uh, perspective that I hadn't considered that one. And, and uh, what you're saying is that um, these generators are, are of a certain quality that, that would you know, uh, be uh, over and above what a, what a core programmer would produce. Yes, uh, very often that's actually it's better. So I, if I would write GPU code, probably I, I know a little bit about GPU code and I try to do it by hand, a little bit for, just for fun, just for testing, probably won't be as good as as the generated codes because they can kind of generate, like if you do this, you can do something like generate different kind of versions and compare them internally and take the fastest one. Yeah, so kind of a little bit just in time compilation. So to, to, they can inspect because they have a lot of information and they generate an AST, an abstract syntax tree, and they can inspect it and make it better and can do a lot of things which a human wouldn't be able to do properly or wouldn't do because it would take too much time. But the machine can do a lot of things and in a few minutes can rearrange everything and try different versions and all kind of things, and uh, which, which is often better than the average application program. If they have a very expert in the field, that is a GPU program or knows everything, they might be able to write faster code, but this would take a long time, would be very expensive, and then we have to change the code manually, and in the end, it wouldn't pay off. Like, who's writing a sampler nowadays? Very few people write a sampler. Uh, 30 years ago, few more, many more people wrote a sampler, but nowadays the sampler is just generated, and very often the generated sampler is faster than manually written sampler, I would say. No, that's a good point. Good point, uh, Chris. What about your your opinion on that? Um, you, having experience with writing assembler <laughs> and many other things, what, do you I, think a, a generated piece of code can be uh, of the same level? I fully agree with Mike. Yes, if you take a look at projects like LLVM, Clang, of course, being the um, the C front end here. Or if you take a look at the at the code generator um, that Rust uses, it uses a slightly modified, I think, LLVM backend. It's it's hard to beat this. 
Um, GPUs are, of course, a slightly different story. But I think even there, CUDA and friends have made great leaps in the last couple of years. Um, Jeff, if I'm if I'm completely mistaken, you're coming from the uh, you're coming also from this embedded area, right? What's your perspective on this? I would I would actually agree on the inline assembly. Anyways, it's really 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 hard to compete with the compilers, um, and part of that is that the instruction sets are so complicated that there's a lot of optimizations that the compilers can make that you don't even realize, especially if you're just sort of learning it to, just to write some inline assembly in the hopes that it's going to be faster. Um, back when I did mobile apps, like um, for the earlier iPhones and Androids that were using RV7, RV6, um, we did do in, inline assembly. Um, and w there were certain things like matrix operations and things like that, um, where we could write it faster than a compiler could generate just because we know the tricks and they're well known. Um, but outside of, of that, you, I mean, you really don't want to do it yourself unless, unless you're really an expert and know what you're doing. Um, the compilers are very good. Um, and kind of the introduction of LLVM as sort of an intermediate language for everything, um, has actually, I think, really helped because now there's tons of things that can, can compile, um, down to the bytecode and then let LLVM deal with handling, with actually generating the machine code from that. Um, so in a way, we're kind of in a, in this cool golden age, I think, where you don't have to go that low level, but you can still get the performance. And almost everything can, in some way or form, be compiled down um, to something that's efficient. So, uh, sorry. Yeah, sorry. For the, for, for the people who don't know what LVM is, LLVM, if I'm completely mistaken, stands for low-level virtual machine, essentially a compiler ecosystem that has various language-specific front-ends like CLang, for for C and, and C plus plus, similar to to GCC and friends, with the main difference that LLVM, as just as Jeff just outlined, is a standardized more or less intermediate language as an intermediate representation that LLVM then simply takes and and opti and produces optimized machine code from this. So the idea is basically a language specific front end takes the programming language of choice like Java, GoLang. Uh, Rust and so forth, produce an abstract syntax tree that, that which is ultimately converted into the intermediate representation, which is then picked up by LLVM. Um, quite a few projects use LLVM these days as their standard um, compiler framework. For example, if you pick up something called Xcode, uh, produced by a company called Apple, if I'm not completely mistaken, um, the uh, what used to be GCC is now LLVM and CLang as their main compiler drivers for um, C, C++, Objective-C, as well as, if I'm completely mistaken, also Swift. That's um, right, yeah. so, so that's the way it works uh, these days. But I found this interesting, Jeff, that you said that uh, you actually, in the olden days, you did assembly on, on, on mobile devices because essentially what that means, you're circumventing the JVM on these early Android implementations, for example? Oh, well, the stuff we were doing was C++ anyways, using the NDK. Okay, got it. Okay, fair enough. And, and, like, so, like, in those days, we would we wrote everything in C++, which is still what game engines do. And then we just had bindings to Objective-C++ or Objective-C, in our case, Objective-C++, because you can inline it with C++. And then, uh, and then you have a Java wrapper for the Android side. But everything's in native code. Especially in those days when the when the phones were like kind of like N sixty four level, um, 
like not particularly fast, just barely fast enough. Um, of, of course, the it's you know it's been exponential uh, how how fast the hardware has improved in the mobile space. But yeah, at that at that time, it was still very useful to write at least very targeted functions um, in assembly. Although a lot of a lot of that stuff is actually just standardized um, in in certain libraries, right? Where like if you're using a math library, it might have you know, hand optimized, you know, matrix multiplication. If you're using, you know, uh, SHA-1, it's probably going down to something that's really uh, optimized as long as you didn't copy paste some code out of, out of Stack Overflow. Yeah, got it, got it. Um, before we move on to, that, that was a very interesting discussion. Uh, thanks for that, guys. Um, before we move on to ecosystems, I'd like uh, sort of a uh, a very quick uh two-liner around what, how do you see the future of each of these languages yourselves having gone through uh, you know, many years with them, um, growing up with them. But uh, what, what do you think of uh, in five, ten years' time, where will we be with each of these? So, Mike, I'd like to start with you. Yeah, so uh, predictions are always difficult, especially if they're about the future. And um... <laughs> Very good. Very, I like it. Uh, but I, I would say one thing is, uh, and uh, uh, opinions are fun. Yeah, yeah, that's my opinion. One thing is like uh, there was a blog post a while ago because you, you might know that this the switch between Python two and Python three was a bit difficult. So uh, this is Python develops. Yeah, so there's there's essentially no difference between Python one and Python two. Essentially, Python one point six and two zero is technically the same thing. It just changed the license, but mm -hmm. there's a big difference between two and three. So they cut off a lot of backward compatible thing, uh, incompatible things. So just something they didn't like. They said they turned out that's not good, and now we have, we want to change it. And if you change it, it's not compatible anymore. And they changed quite a few things. And that was a big thing in, in the community because a lot of they just thought people just switch from Python two to Python three, but it didn't happen. <laughs> yeah. And a lot of people had to maintain libraries, a library for two versions for many years, for more than ten years. So Python three came out in two thousand eight initially, and now we are kind of over the thing, everything to Python three pretty much. Not everything, just there's uh, still a lot yeah. of consulting <laughs> business. To, to, so if you want to make money with consulting, you should consult for Python two support. Yeah. So there are still quite a few legacy things that, that, that go behind it that never want to change. I think YouTube is one of them. I'm not sure mistaking, so I'm not, I'm, but that's, that's, but my last information I had that YouTube is partially written in Python 2 and they maintain their old Python compiler, if I'm not mistaking. So interpreter. And this would be something that, that's not going to happen with Python 4. That's, that's the future. So Python 4 will be a backward compatible to Python 3 to a large degrees. And also they, there's no Python 4 on the horizon as far as I'm, no, no, I'm aware. There will be now Python 3.9 is coming out and there will be a Python 3.10 likely in the Python 3.11 and so on. So they go with two digits, yeah, because Python 2.7 is the last mm -hmm. version. So that's, that's something they want to make it more compatible. And seems like Python is kind of now very, very interesting language because it's a language that scales. So you can, as beginners start programming with Python and with very small software of Python, you get something done. But I've been using Python now for 20 years. I'm still learning and I teach advanced Python training with metaprogramming and stuff. And there's a lot of fun, funny things you can do, but very few people actually need it. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. Hmm. Meta class is something 
I haven't never used them in production, so even if I've studied them quite a bit for the training, but there's very few use cases for these things. So it's a, it's a language that kind of scales pretty well, and it makes it interesting for a lot of different applications. So the typical user who switches from using Excel for data analysis to Python is one end, and the other one is writing very sophisticated uh, AST, uh, abstract industry format formations, and converting Python into other languages and doing all kinds of uh, these kind of things. And that's, I think that that's one of, we talked about it already. So Python has a lot of ways to, to connect with other languages. Python is a subset of Python or superset of Python that can translate Python directly to C. In addition to wrapping C and C++ libraries, there's Python in Rust. Yeah. There's Python in WebAssembly, Pyodite running the browser. And if there's another language, there will be another binding. So that's probably one way that Python continues. And it will be very often the, the go-to getting started language for programming. I think a lot of universities nowadays, they switch to Python as a, as a programming 101 language, which used to be Java or sometimes even C++, but uh, Jeff might agree, somebody had never programmed before starting the C++ might not be the best experience in terms of uh, how, how fast you can progress. Yeah, so Python is way more approachable, I think, because you can just start doing some very small scripts that moves your files from left to right, and it's doing something useful. And then if you want, you can, you don't even write a function if you don't want to in the beginning, and then you can learn how to write a function and maybe how to write a class, and you can go gradually and, and can learn and you can use a lot of libraries. That's the other thing, which is Python's truly expanded. Like you have like 250,000 libraries on this Python package index, PyPI. Yeah, there's a PyPI <laughs> and there's a PyPy, which is a different Python implementation. Don't confuse the both. So PyPI, Python package index, uh, and has a lot of, lot of libraries for pretty much everything. So if you have a task, you think this problem should have, somebody should have had it before. It's very likely that there's a library out there that is doing it very yeah. much better yeah. than you can do. The only thing you have to find a word how to search for it, uh, the, the search in PyPI very often gives you many, many hits, which are totally irrelevant. So the search is not that good yet. So likely a Google search might be even better yeah, because Google has some different algorithms to search. But very likely once you spend like half an hour searching and evaluating different options, you probably find a library that is solving 80 or 90% of your problem already, and you just have to write to rest. Yeah. I think this is uh, something that, that Chris has done himself, right? Yeah, a lot of times he mentioned that the, if there's a piece of code he needs to write, it will go on and uh, collect various bits out of out of PyPI and, <laughs> and modify them, glue them together. Um, would you do the same with, um, with, uh, with Rust on with the crates uh, approach? Um, Absolutely. Um, uh, in contrast to Mark's observation that predictions are hard, especially if they're about the future, <laughs> I'm happy to report actually since now I got the flux capacity. You got it working. working. Yes, indeed. <laughs> so I'm happy to report that in about five years time, Rust will have taken over major portions of the open source language ecosystem, ultimately resulting in a version called Linux. What is it? Um, 10.5, which, are, which basically now contains, and we're talking about the year probably 2034 or 35, will contain about 70% Rust. The rest is still C legacy code. Python will have a niche existence, um, mostly confined to big data. Um, mm. 
and C, yes, or C++, maybe mobile. But Rust ultimately will take over the universe. No jokes aside, people. Uh, every every language has their own specific uh, purpose, have the, has, has their own specific uh, kind of um, target audience. And uh, the idea when, when Brendan and friends basically about, te- well, 10 years ago, they sat down and did this Rust thing, um, was to come up with a, with a performant low-level language aimed at system programming, because essentially what this is what they did when they sat down and wrote something called Servo. Um, given the fact that the ecosystem is growing by leaps and bounds, something that took Python about, what, 20 years? Rust took only, or uh, the Rust uh, ecosystem basically took about 10 years to, to reach, I wouldn't say the same level, but pretty close to it. Going forward, I see I see Rust basically entering um, more and more. I wouldn't say just low-level use cases, but also kind of um, system domains. Let's put it this way: you see this actually if you take a look at the at the um, <clears throat> at the at the current developments. Uh, the Tor project, as in the Onion router, basically is toying with Rust. Microsoft has just discovered that Rust is actually a programming language going forward, which is in, which is very interesting. There's a presentation. You find the links in the show. No, you find the link in the show notes. Uh, there's actually a presentation from Microsoft about a couple of months back, where they said they they are actively evaluating Rust in the number of projects where previously, and Jeff probably agrees, C and C++ were the languages of choice for Microsoft to implement their applications and and operating system. For example, much of Office is actually written in C++ as a Microsoft Office. Um, Going forward, they made different choices. For example, Visual Studio Code is mostly written in in TypeScript. Python is done too at Microsoft, but it wouldn't surprise me that in about five to ten years' time, you'll see much more, not only cloud um, um, stuff as in Azure and, and friends, but also native applications emerging from Microsoft being written in Rust. And you'll see a broad adoption of Rust all over the place. And Tor and Microsoft are just being two examples here, plus, of course, the Linux kernel. That's a very bold prediction there. What's your view on this? It's not a prediction. It's it's the (laughs) truth. (laughs) What do you think, Jeff? Is is there anywhere close to the truth? I don't know if that's the truth, uh, (laughs) but I think I think it is would be a good truth, a good future. Um, I mean, part of the reason why I like Rust, I think, is is because it solves some of the biggest issues that we have. Like when I use software. I mean, the two biggest problems I have in general are one, it's too slow, and two, it's too buggy, um, <laughs> right? And like, yeah. so like what we what we need is like programming languages that that attack those two things primarily, um, and that means performance has to be key, like a, a central part of it, um, and the, and then like you know safety, and Rust is all about safety, and like that's part of the reason I like C++ is that they're in some ways we're allied. Like if you look at a lot of the, um, a lot of the things that they've added to C++, all the zero cost abstractions, all the higher level stuff that gets uh, like brought down in the compiler to like really efficient code. Um, that's similar to what Rust is doing, but Rust is like a clean start. Right. Um, mm-hmm. So in some ways I see it as, a, as like C++ little brother. Um, I don't know if Rust likes to be seen that way, but 
Um, but to me as a C++ okay. programmer, that's how I see it. and I want that little brother to eventually take over. Grow right? up. Yeah. Because yeah, yeah. um, the problem with the C++, um, and I was kind of reminded of this when we were talking about Python 2 versus Python 3, is that they will not break uh, backwards compatibility for the mo- most part. I mean, there are like, you can craft a program that will work in older C++ that will not work in newer C++. Like if you intentionally use keywords that were added later or things like that. But for the most part, they won't do that. And that's because so many of the people uh, who influence the committee work on large code bases. Um, and they're, they're very aware of that. They don't want to break anyone's code. Um, so they'll, they'll do things they'll, like they'll, like they'll acknowledge that no is, is bad. We inherited that from C, but, um, the fact that it, it's an integer and a pointer, right? And a Boolean, like <laughs> that was bad, right? So they introduced null pointer, which, which is targeted to one use case, right? But then they didn't get rid of null. So now there's all this cruft. Um, and part of the problem is that they can say, like, you know, you only need to learn the new stuff, but in reality, you're working with code bases that have existed for a while and, and you actually have to learn both the new stuff and the old stuff. I mean, you'll never have to learn everything because there's part of the C++ philosophy is like everything is possible. We will implement like whatever it is, any crazy way you want to do something is supported. But, um, but yeah, that it's, it's both a, a blessing and a curse, right? That like we can't get away from some of the core issues that were introduced in the language or that were, uh, well, uh, yes and no. I mean, obviously the standard keeps evolving even with C++, right? And, and, uh, I mean, Chris mentioned, uh, you know, so adoption in Tor and, and potentially Microsoft, but th- there is obviously a large amount of backing for the language, right? Um, uh, which is more, uh, well, more proprietary perhaps than, than for Rust, but, um, so uh, just... as such, as such, a, the language will keep growing as well as, as, and evolving, I'm sure. Oh, it is. Yeah. Well, so like, that's the other half of what, sort of what I wanted to say, um, is it is a very rapidly evolving language and it's a very exciting language. Um, at least for me, <laughs> uh, in that like, ev- right now I'm working in C++ 14 primarily, uh, just because we don't switch to new things until we are sure that every platform, every right. random compiler that we might have to use, um, supports it. Um, but there's like every day I'm like, oh man, there's this stuff in C plus plus seventeen I wish I could use. Yeah. Right. I wish I could use standard optional. I wish I could use um like initializing two variables from one function call. Um, things like that. And it's just like literally the day to day stuff that I do is better in C plus plus seventeen mm-hmm. or would be better if I was using it. And that and this is the same is true for C plus plus twenty. So like a lot of things they that they, they are working on mm-hmm. are are really, really are day-to-day things. Because I see a lot of criticism on the internet, like, you know, oh, that they're off, like, messing around with templates that only matter for, you know, people who write Boost or or certain libraries. Um, and that's not really true. Like, the way I write C++ now is very different from the way I did it 10 years ago. Um, and I'm, I'm very certain it will be different 10 years from now. Um, different and better, I should say. Um, so for that reason, it's really exciting. Because I, I, I have, I mean, there was stuff that was, like, standardized three years ago that I'm still not using, but I know that they're there and I'm excited when we, when we approve it in our code base, um, that my life will get immediately better and that they're working on the next things as well. And the fact that they won't break any of my existing stuff is actually pretty nice. So, um, so yeah, I think it's a really fun, interesting and exciting place to be, um, you know, in the C++ world. So, 
Good, quick, good. quick, bold question, Jeff. Um, if you consider us to be the small, bro- the, the small brother or the younger brother of C++, <laughs> what do you think is the ultimate shelf, shelf life of C++ going forward? I don't think it goes away, and I don't think Rust will ever replace it completely. Interesting. Um, there's just, like, there's too much there. Legacy, you know? okay, yeah, there's, got it. It's not just legacy. There's still certain things... Um, and I haven't gotten deep enough with Rust to know, like, as soon as I write some big Rust program, I'm going to find, like, 20 things that I like more about C++, I'm sure. <laughs> um, just because there's just so many more features in C++, right? Um, right. So there'll be something missing. That's been my experience with pretty much every language that I have to use. That's uh, when I switch to something else. I'm like, oh, why Why does it, been, like, I, I was doing Go recently, and there's no generics in Go, and I was like, Oh my God, I just wish it was C++, right? So I'm sure there'll be things like that. Um, I mean, Rust does have generics, but there'll be other things like that, uh, that will keep C++ programmers using C++ even for new code. So I, w- I wouldn't go so far as to say it's only legacy. Um, but I, I do think in general, it's a good thing if slowly Rust takes over some of the C++ ecosystem. Um, just cause I think it, it's targeted at, at, like the things that we really need, which is fast, secure programs. I mean, C++ C++ is now 40 years old. Strustrup, I think, started to develop the language in 79. Right. Um, Give Rust a few more, give Rust a few more years. I think think 40 years mature, don't you, Chris? (laughs) (laughs) But I think that's part of the, the, part of my point is that like, it hasn't gone away in 40 years, right? And this is true of a lot of like major languages, like it's going to continue on because it already has 40 years of momentum. Right. So for that reason, it will be hard to replace. Never mind the large code bases written in in C++, of course. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, whenever you hear about these, these bugs like Heartbleed or things, um, you know, my non-programmer friends, whenever one of these hits the generic news or the general non-programming news, they go, why is there some bug from like this program in 1991 or whatever? Um, and it's just like, because everything in, in computing is built on what happened before. So we have decades and decades of things going on. Um, and it's like everything that's been built so far. I mean, some of it goes away and gets replaced, but it's not just C++, Python, all these major languages are going to be around for many, many more decades. Um, and that's just, that's just the way things are even if it's not the way things should be. So, but I do think that there are still cases where C++ is the ideal language. Um, and I still have to put my disclaimer that I haven't gone deep enough with Rust. <laughs> I could, I could just okay. completely change my mind next you time. can do a follow-up episode next year, perhaps. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Excellent. All right, gents. Um, final closing remarks from anyone? I think that was a great discussion. Um, and as, as, as you've all said, the, the future of these languages is, is, is going to be there for a number of years to come. Uh, we've seen some of the upcomings of Rust. We've seen the variety and expanse of the, the libraries for Python. Um, but, um, yeah. So, so final remarks from anyone? Maybe just uh, this prediction thing. So if, if Rust will kind of take or increase a lot and I see a lot of more, uh, 
Rust-based Python extension. So that's probably a lot of Python school there. So they, it's, it's existing already. Though there are some some people fiddling around with a Python interpreter written, written in Rust. And right now you can also already write uh, extensions uh, in Python for Rust. So if Rust will take over more of this C++, C kind of field, this is low-level system language programming thing, then I will imagine that Python will have way more extensions that are written in, in Rust. Uh, and I think Python really focuses more on this application programming thing. And then you can take advantage of these libraries and you don't have to dive, have to actually know how Rust works. A lot of programmers are this field. They, they, they don't know Rust, but they can still use the functionality through an extension. And I think that's, that's going to gonna develop. It's not going to go away. Okay, excellent. Yeah, no, that's, that's a fair point, right? It, uh, uh, your, um, uh, you say your analytics user or, or, or those kind of users of a programming language, then their primary focus is not to write a production ready program, there is to get their problem solved. So, an yeah, easier language. Yeah. That's one big application area. So, one big yeah. is it's just a lot of people using programming as a tool as part of their job and their engineers or, or some kind of things that they're using for problem solving. And that's a big part of the uh, Python use cases. There are also people that are writing big applications in Python themselves. Uh, but uh, I think by the numbers, there's way more people using Python as a tool besides other things they do. Okay. Chris, final remark from yourself? Um, I reckon the whole bet basically centers around the ecosystem, right? I mean, that goes for C++, C, Python, um, Lisp, uh, Rust, just to name a few languages, never mind Fortin and all the rest of them. Um, if you can convince enough people to contribute to the ecosystem, you'll get that growth that PyPI has been experiencing for the last, what, 15 years. Um, you get all these libraries um, like QT for graphical user interface, like the GTK um, for 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 low-level um, GUI stuff and, and so forth. Uh, and they are written in C and C++. And so going forward programming will consist more and more of taking a look at what what's out, what's already out there and then how to solve the problem with already existing code needless to say as we saw with Heartbleed and other stuff that has that has a certain level of of security implications because if you're using code that you not that you haven't written yourself, you don't necessarily know about the technical depth, never mind, never mind the, about the attack surface of this code. So it's a balance basically between simply reusing the existing code bases and uh, quality assurance as in, as in technical, as in technical depth uh, minimization in terms of how much do you want to spend on making sure that the application does what you want it to. Uh, especially in a secure context. And I reckon this is essentially where Rust shines because uh, the ecosystem basically consists of Rust code and you can be sure of if a Rust compiler accepts a code base, it's normally to some extent vetted already uh, because you cannot compile unsafe code, for example, in Rust. Um, so for me, going forward, and it would be interesting to have the same conversation with the same people in about 10 years' yeah. time to see if the predictions were right or wrong, uh, and to see where we are with regards to the surrounding ecosystems of these languages and basically how they're grown and also basically if uh, there are any favorites. For example, uh, Mike, correct me if I'm wrong, but there are at least 
three or four web frameworks uh, in 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 um in Python, and nobody you kind of three hundred web frameworks in Python. There are many. Okay, yeah. fair, fair yeah, there, there, there's there's a few big ones, like Django is being the biggest one. Flask is maybe the runner up. And then there's many others around. Pyramid and so forth, yes. Yeah, there's, there's many new ones coming up because pretty easy they're getting better because they learn from the mistakes of the things. It's always, that, that's an advantage and disadvantage of open source because everybody can roll their own. Yeah. And there's a lot of, of these frameworks out and you, you don't know which of them is going to survive. Django is going to stick around because that's a big 200 pounds or 800 pound gorilla. He should say the, the big one. And a lot of people use Django. It's because it's very opinionated out of, out of box. Everything works. And there are many more micro and mini or whatever frameworks you want to call them that are have a different approach and you can put things together. So that's, that's like the web uh, space, the web the, the application space in Python. And you have many, many new ones that some, some are very good in some particular kind of things. Now everything's getting asynchronous. And there are some things that just you just can use to use REST applications like this uh, sending JSON back and forth, so to speak. And you don't actually have this HTML generation anymore on your backend. So there's many different ways to develop. And you will in time will tell which one is going to survive, which one turns out to be still relevant in 10 years. So and I, I, I don't claim I can predict it. I just say we have to see what's, mm. how things are going. It's all about the ecosystem. Yes, Jeff, over to you. Sorry. Oh yeah. Well, I don't like, I don't want to make any predictions about 10 years from now, but, um, I do like what, um, what we were saying about, uh, Python being a language that's easy to learn. And I, I think like each of these languages has their own niche. Um, and I, I do think like all, all of these languages can grow in their own way, even though I, I did say I was hoping that Rust eats some of the C++, um, ecosystem or, or user base. Um, I think 10 years from now, we'll, we'll be in a situation where things are more aligned to way this, the way they should be because we have more options now. And the ones that, the ones that are the right options for the right types of programs will naturally grow. Or at least hopefully. I guess that's a Darwinian argument, but, um, but yeah, I, I, I just think things are going to get better and better. Um, as, as like all of these languages grow, as their ecosystems expand and as people learn the right use cases for the right languages. Right. And base less of their stuff on, on what, what was the legacy. So I think it's going to be a, a good place to program 10 years from now or a good time, I should say. Excellent. Excellent. All right. I would just like to finally then say thank you very much, everybody, for um, your contributions today. It's been very insightful and uh, we'll hold you to that. Um, well, five to ten years <laughs> rerun of the episode to see where we where we got to with this. Thank you very much for having me. Thank well, you very, very much. Pleasure, pleasure indeed. Very interesting discussion. I actually want something today. That's always good. And thank you very much for giving Rust a chance, Martin. That was a very interesting panel discussion, Martin. Was, what do you, what yeah, do you think? No. Uh, but yes, no, it was. I thought it was very interesting. Um, and as as per our news, uh, it looks like uh, Rust is on the way up. But yeah, likewise, um, as as uh, we have, we all know, C plus plus has a large installed code base in many organizations, right? So it's not going away anytime soon. Um, yeah, but, but yes, but you see, if if companies like Microsoft are actively considering 
doing new projects in Rust, there must mm -hmm. be something to it. Of course, of course. I mean, no, I mean, you, new projects, yes, but if you think about certain software companies that are still running Python 2.7 as part of their code base, then you know what I mean, right? Then adopting something like Rust um, uh, more uh, globally is, is a long way off. Agreed, but um, given the fact that C++ used to be the workhorse at Microsoft in terms of both operating systems as well as applications, that's a, I wouldn't say it's a bold move, but it's an interesting development, let's put it this way. Yeah, it's, it's very significant, that's, that's for sure, yeah. We're coming from Microsoft, I agree with that, yep. Okay, and then it's on to feedback, right? Feedback, yes. Yes. Okay, shall I go first? Or, uh, yes, and, Martin, and, please. And do, 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 you, do you have an hour? Because we have uh, some, well, you can... some feedback from, from Greg <coughs> J, yeah, which uh, is um, 20 pages long. So uh, well, why, why, don't you give us, this why don't you just give us the highlights rather than kind of reading it all? <laughs> okay, the highlights are um, if you uh, um, believe in certain uh, religions, uh, then, yeah, uh, this is the, the article to read or the text. <laughs> to, to okay. <laughs> so, yeah, you get the idea, right? I do um, get the idea, yes. So, in, in contrast to, to this bit of news, which are, sorry, this bit of uh, feedback, which was clearly not destined at Linux in-laws alone, <clears throat> um, I'm looking at an email that Emma, uh, that Emma wrote. Emma wrote in... Um, Sorry, Emma is, of course, from um, Rainbow Escorts. During a recent <laughs> visit, I had the pleasure of servicing Martin. Martin, you, you actually took my advice. I don't know why she's writing to you. Who well, we come you? to that in a minute, but... <laughs> okay, <laughs> listen, for, for those of you who missed the last episode, Martin, uh, let, me give you the, let me give you the background of the story. Martin, again, <laughs> tried to claim expenses for an escort service that he used... Um, thus, A, violating Linux in-laws uh, expense claim policies. B, accounts wasn't accounts payable, wasn't too happy about it. So they got in touch with me and said, oh, now look, have a work with the co-host, right? Which I did. <clears throat> and uh, subsequently, Martin decided to actually follow my, follow my advice and use Ra Ra Rainbow Escort services because we do have a corporate account with them. Perfect. Ah, this, is this something you instated? Was it? That was a good idea. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you should have, you could have told me this. <laughs> well, I did tell you, Martin. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Again, during a recent visit, I had the pleasure of servicing Martin. Although most of his requests were nothing special. Ah, I see, Martin. A few of the things he desired were a bit on the unusual side. Interesting. Unfortunately, you tell, you this, tell. no, this is an explicit show, but, the, the next couple of things that Emma writes are clearly triple X plus, so <laughs> we won't go ah. into the details. Okay, no, no, I thought you, you were going to say something about uh, her uh, reading chapters from the C++. Uh, uh, no, 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 no. And, and actually, another very interesting observation. So we, we're going to skip the uh, the funky uh, the funky bits. Um, she closed that that feedback with. I quote, apart from his stunning physique and muscular <laughs> statue, there are other parts of his body that make him ideally qualified for a career in the adult entertainment industry. More than happy to broker the initial introductions, etc. Martin! <laughs> I see. Don't you need to be sort of middle-aged and bald to be in this industry? Yes, yeah. Martin! Oh, so so, so this, you tell me. Anyway. If this whole IT swindle blows, you are, you're headed for the porn industry. How good is that? <laughs> 
I don't know. You tell me. <laughs> <laughs> Money to be made, Martin. <laughs> Isn't that your side job? <laughs> no, it's not funny enough. <laughs> okay. Oh, I thought since you're usually unavailable in the evenings. <laughs> Martin, just let me other. know if you're serious about this and a website can be whipped up on short notice. Let's <laughs> see. Yes, um, I'm sure these, these things can uh, be arranged pretty quickly. But, yes. Um, let, let's stick with the IT side for now. <laughs> Coward. <laughs> <laughs> well, Martin, imagine, I mean, you then kind of appearing on, I mean, what, what, what is the porn, porn, porn industry equivalent of the, of, uh, of the Academy Awards? I'm sure, I'm sure that there's something. And I, right. basically, once you win this, I can, I can, t- I basically, I can say, I knew him when he wasn't famous. I see, I see. Do you think this is beneficial to the um, propaganda of Linux uh, in <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> hmm. Hmm. Well, I'd, I'd, if um, uh, yeah, if so, well, if you agree that this is a, um, why don't you set the example, Chris? <laughs> Linux in-laws <laughs> as a breeding ground for budding porn stars. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting perspective uh, there, Martin. <laughs> okay, <laughs> Martin, if this whole startup GPU database just blows up, <laughs> just just go for it. <laughs> Yeah. I reckon with with my current employer, who happens to be also Martin, Martin's previous employer, it's it's like a, a, a little bit of more time because we just had another injection of funds into the company, but that's beside the mm. point. So mm. maybe meet you on the other side in a couple of years' time. I don't know. Other side of? Uh, this is just an expression, right? Meet you on the other side in terms of meeting you on the set. Isn't that when? Oh, I thought. Oh, I see. I thought when when you expired. <laughs> no, 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 no. That's the other side journey. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, porn stars don't expire, Martin. Porn stars just go into a different uh, sphere. Okay. <laughs> in case you didn't know. <laughs> no, I didn't. <laughs> Sorry. Not a subject I studied that closely. Apparently, Martin, there's still a learning curve to master yeah, before you indeed, can indeed. venture into the adult yeah, entertainment yeah, yeah, yeah. industry. But given the fact that you, that you have, that you're significantly, significantly younger than I am, there's still time to learn. <laughs> so that's okay. Excellent. Okay, people. Um, that's pretty much it. Unless Martin has anything to add about his <laughs> second career choice. <laughs> Or option rather than a choice, but option. It's, it's probably more like the 15th rather than the second, to be fair. <laughs> fair enough. Okay, people. Um, yep. We are on Hacker Public Radio, as usual. Uh, credits hmm. go, of course, to Hacker Public Radio. Fair enough. Uh, feedback um, <clears throat> can be sent to, uh, like Emma did and like spammers do, apparently. Lin- uh, feedback can be sent to feedback at linuxinlaws, all one word, dot EU. And, uh, um, for the time being, yes, you will find us at Public Radio. Should that change, you will be the first to know listening to this podcast. And see you at the next episode. Before we conclude today's episode... A shameless pitch for the upcoming Big Halloween special at the end of October. We need your questions by mid-October, ideally open source related. Unfortunately, what are next week's lotto numbers or what's Emma's phone number only have a slim chance of getting answered. Simply send your questions to feedback at linuxinlaws.eu and listen to our Halloween special to hear the answers.
This podcast is licensed under the latest version of the Creative Commons license. Type attribution share like. Credits for the intro music go to Blue Sea Roosters for the song Salute Margaret, to Twin Flames for their piece called The Flow used for the segment intros, and finally to Celestial Ground for the song Sweet Justice used by the Dark Side. You find these and other ditties licensed under CC at Chimando a website dedicated to liberate the music industry from choking copyright legislation and other crap concepts. Hi. Hello. Mr. Visser, glad you could join. <laughs> Natürlich, um, kein Problem, ja. <laughs> um, Martin is pretending he's German. He's Dutch um, by origin, so I reckon yeah, we should stick the, to the, English. The, the last name doesn't really tell. This can be a German name, I think. That's no, nothing special about the mistake. Or do you think, or do you think your Russian knowledge <clears throat> in German can muster up? <laughs> Mm. Uh, to the requirements, Mr. Visser. Interesting question. Yeah, <laughs> yeah okay, I'll, repeat I'll, after I'll me. It's now. Ross. Yeah. It's R-O-S-T. <laughs> Rosti, Rosti, yeah. Rosti, is I think, is Okay, I think we're just waiting for Jeff and then we can get started. Yeah. So and I'm 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 not familiar with the podcast. <laughs> I have to I have to say. So that's that's a that's a Linux podcast. Is this right? It's an open source podcast. An open source and more general open source. Podcast. Okay, yeah, maybe maybe I should explain this. Or <laughs> Martin, <laughs> why, why don't you give it a shot in German? So come on, Martin, try your German. Okay, so die Linux Innos sind zwei Leute, die sehr alt sind. <laughs> Very good. Und äh, die sprechen über äh, äh, offene, mh, offene Source. Mh, mh. I'm impressed if my Dutch was as good as your German. It's a long time since I've spoken any German. <laughs> okay, Mike, just to fill it, um, this all started about almost a year ago in in, in a small location in, in Prague in, Czech, in the Czech Republic. <laughs> Um, where some artists decided now it's time for a slightly humorous podcast, and hence Linux Inlaws was, bor was born. Mm -hmm. I don't know if if a format named Linux Outlaws rings a bell. It was a podcast that started about 15 years ago, maybe maybe less, by okay. Dan Lynch and Pap Shasho of of the H uh, fame, and of course Dan Lynch being one of the people behind something called OCCAMP. One of the mm -hmm. large uh, open source UK con uh, unconferences, mm -hmm. if not the largest, and then then got ill and they terminated the podcast or shut it down for want of a better expression around 2014, 2015, something like this. And um, 
the in-laws are pretty much a little bit of the legacy of the outlaws. Mm-hmm. Slightly more on the communist side, more on the humorous side. Um, but apart from that, keeping up the spirit of free and open source software. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. There's a beautiful homepage done by our own Mr. Visser. Um, at the linuxinlaws.eu <laughs> domain. Linux in laws. Okay, so that's my yeah, right there. It's nice. And now you know how Mr. Visser uh, looks as a okay, yeah. Okay, so you, you two have met. Oh yeah, uh, okay. we met. Where did we, where did we meet first time around? Uh, Kevin's right. But maybe two years ago, maybe one year ago. I'm old. Yeah, we, we met. We met uh, last year. We talked uh, long on. Uh, probably we met before. I think you met the year before also. And uh, but just last year we were sitting there for an hour talking about things. I remember. So in, in Chemnitz, I talked to a lot of people. So, and I talked to a lot of. Usually when I'm I'm traveling, talk to a lot of people. So I'm, I might mm-hmm. get forget a little bit to whom I'm talk to. Surely you but, didn't forget Chris. <laughs> That's so, quite, quite difficult. Thank you. Really, yeah. Episodes, Who yes. needs enemies in this case? Indeed. If you have friends like these, <laughs> and, and, and a, a nice radio here, yeah, the picture of the radio is from the sixties, I guess. Uh, yeah, full credits have to go to Martin because he did the lion's share of the web uh, of the website. I just kind of fiddled around with it a little bit, a little bit here and there. You've been listening to Hacker Public Radio at hackerpublicradio.org. We are a community podcast network that releases shows every weekday, Monday through Friday. Today's show, like all our shows, was contributed by an HBR listener like yourself. If you ever thought of recording a podcast, then click on our contribute link to find out how easy it really is. Hacker Public Radio was founded by the Digital Dog Pound and the Infonomicon Computer Club and is part of the binary revolution at binrev.com. If you have comments on today's show, please email the host directly, leave a comment on the website, or record a follow-up episode yourself. Unless otherwise stated, today's show is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license.